Amen. Thanks, SP and Aspen. Though they're going to come back up. We're going to sing one more at the end here. All right, here we go. Part six of this series with the cool graphic that Heather and Aspen made for us. The uh, World Cup is going on right now. I don't know if you're paying attention to it. America, we almost beat England, but we tied. But uh, it's been fun to watch it. There was a commercial that came on. So whether you're following it or not, whether you care or not, there was a commercial that came on a while back before the World Cup. And there was a tagline in the commercial and it said, joy to the world as the tagline. And what's interesting is that that's a Christmas hymn. So if you know that, that's where that comes from. And what's interesting is that um, Qatar or Qatar, depending on how you want to say it, I feel like that's pretty debated right now. And I don't want to take anybody off. So however you want to say it, it doesn't matter to me. Uh, I'm going to go Qatar for now because I don't want to say it both. John Lovell agrees and John Lovell has tattoos. So we're not going to disagree with him. So um, it, Qatar is interesting because Qatar is very opposed to the spread of Christianity. So it actually opposes Christianity. And that's interesting because it's, it's ironic if you think about it, that the tagline of a commercial for something that Qatar spent billions on to be able to have is a play is in a place that's against what that message even says and I thought it was interesting because even though it is joy to the world is related to the coming of Jesus which we are celebrating in in a few weeks here um, every person wants joy to the world every person every country wants the world to experience joy they want to experience it personally And that idea of joy to the world, it's this exclamation that something's wrong, like something's not right with the world. And so what is going to bring it joy? And like Qatar or Qatar, whatever you want to say, um, I would say that Dallas actually can be similar in that a lot of people in our context don't believe that Christianity is actually going to bring joy to the world. I want you to think about this question. I think I I put it up here. Um, What's the first thing that you think of when you think of Christianity. Okay, I just want to throw that out to you right now. What's the first thing that you think of when you think of Christianity? It could be a variety of things. And then I want you to think about this. How about other people? It can be people in your family. It can be people at school. It can be people in the world today. What's the first thing that people think of when they think of Christianity? I'll tell you this. It's not joy to the world. That's not what the world is thinking when they hear Christianity. When you talk to people outside the church, here are the common answers, because I did this this week. So these are the common answers that you're going to get. Okay, the, the one answer that you'll get if you talk to people outside the church, hey, what's the first thing you think of when you think of Christianity? They will say those are, those are people that care specifically about a social, cultural, or political issue. Okay, so that is what a lot of people outside the church see us as, is inside the churches. They care about this specific political issues. You can fill it in, whether it's abortion or something else, but this is an issue. Like I associate Christianity with that political issue. Okay. Um, where I went to high school, Highland Park, I think two, th- three words that would come to mind for people that were not following Jesus. One would be joyless. So people do not associate Christianity as being where joy is found. Okay. They would say, no, no, no joy is found living this way not in following Jesus. The second one would be irrelevant. So like that's that thing we do on Sundays, but it's not relevant to my daily life of um, 
boyfriends, girlfriends, stress, where am I going to go to college, friend stuff, family stuff. It's not relevant to my daily life. It's stuff that happened thousands of years ago. Another word that you might hear is judgmental. People would say, man, those people, they're just judgmental. They look down on other people. They talk bad about them. Um, Do you relate to these things? Do you see this in your relationships? This is very common. Uh, Inside the church, though, here's what's interesting. If you were to ask people inside the church, and I've done this too, and I mean all, all types of churches, not just this one, what is Christianity primarily about? The answer that you're going to get most often, okay, and I've tested this, is some version of saying living for God, living for God. Like that's what Christianity is about. It's about living for God. And so what that ends up doing is it puts the focus on your behavior. And so what a lot of people inside the church think, especially in high school ministries with the messages that you get a lot, is it's all about behavior. Like live this way, don't live this way. Okay, don't drink, but do hang out with good people or whatever. Okay, and so when you compare that to the Bible, what the Bible actually says about Christianity, whether it's the common views of people outside the church or whether it's the common views of people inside the church, um, that's completely different than how the Bible presents Christianity. The way the Bible presents Christianity is it's primarily a rescue story where God is the one who saves and you are the one who needs to be saved. And so Christianity is not about living for God. Christianity is about how God in Christ lived for you. That's completely different. And so the the Bible regularly presents salvation as a uh, that Jesus brings as a feast. That's what's interesting is the Bible uses metaphors, it uses symbols. It doesn't just say, here's some doctrine up here, think about it. No, it gives us pictures to really um, attack our senses. So Isaiah 25 is an example. If you read Isaiah 25 later, you will see that the salvation that Jesus came to bring is like a feast. And so today what I want to do, we're talking about salvation, and I want to do three things today. I want about salvation being pictured as a feast throughout Scripture. I want to say that this implies three things. This is what we're going to talk about, about Christian salvation, okay, joy to the world. This is what Christianity is all about. Because it's a feast, it implies forgiveness, fellowship, and fullness. Okay, I'm going to explain what that means. Forgiveness, fellowship, and fullness. So salvation in the Bible, if you don't know what it means, it means to be delivered from danger. That's really what it means. It's to be delivered from something. So that big word we use, salvation, that's what it means, to be delivered from danger. But here's the thing. That's not really good news if you don't think you have any danger to be delivered from. And so if you're not like, ah, like my danger is not that big of a deal, then you're not going to really think that salvation really matters. But here's the reality, the greater the danger, the more grateful you're going to be for the deliverance. Okay, the greater the danger, the more grateful you're going to be for the deliverance. So I've told you this story about my ridiculous friend who lives in Austin who cannot understand directions to save his life. And he got lost I think I've told you this, in a, uh, in, in like a forest? I don't know if that's what you call it. It's really like a park in Austin. He got lost. And so he started panicking. His phone was on low battery. And he ends up calling his wife. And his wife's like, well, I mean, I don't know, Rob. Like, just, just like, what was the last tree you saw? I don't know. Like, you're in a park in Austin. Like, it can't be that difficult. Like, just, there's got to be someone around. Well, the sun starts going down. And so he panics and he calls the police. And the police take this very seriously. Apparently, there was no crime in Austin that day. And I have a picture. I forgot to put it up here. And so the police were like, this is awesome. So what happened is, we learned this after the fact, is that 
the dude on the chopper, yes, they sent a helicopter, okay? And the guys in the two rescue trucks, the control center rescue trucks, um, competed to see who would get to him the fastest. And so, no joke, my friend was responsible for a helicopter in Austin landing in this park, along with like multiple police cars, the central control truck, a fire truck. I mean, you would think that like the Joker came to town, like this is that big of a deal. And so I'll show you pictures later. I forgot to put them up here, but it, the scene's ridiculous. You're like, this happened because a 30 year old got lost in the woods in Austin. Okay. But you say, so you're like, well, that's, that's a little bit of an overreaction. Like that wasn't that big of a deal. Okay. Um, but in Christianity, what you're going to see is that, no, 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 this is a huge deal. And so we celebrate, we enjoy, we delight in being delivered. We realize I'm not just lost in the woods in Austin. Like this is a desperate situation. So the first question we have to ask is what are we being delivered from? Like what's wrong with the world the way that it is? Why do we sing songs like joy to the world? Knowing that that's not the current condition of the world. See, diagnosis comes before prescription. Like if you go to the doctor and you're like, I'm not feeling that good. And they're like, great news, just take these pills. You're like, well, I didn't even tell you what was wrong with me. Like, you didn't even look at me and figure out, is it your arm? Is it your heart? Like, that could be very different things. Like, diagnosis comes before prescription. Like, we have to prescribe, to diagnose the problem before we give a good prescription. And here's the thing, there's no way to talk about this subject without talking about the subject of sin. We're going to talk about this in a little bit, but the subject, um, the word sin in center really have so much cultural baggage today. Um, have you seen this like at school or in your life? Like people do not want to talk about sin. They don't want to talk about sinners because those two words are usually associated with judgmentalism. And that's really a wrong view of what the Bible teaches about sin. Like people think sin is just bad behavior. And what we're going to find out today is no, no, sin is actually so much bigger than that. We have a much more desperate situation than we think we do, which means our salvation is much bigger than we think it is. So to me, the whole Bible is a salvation story, but Luke 15 to me is my favorite place to go when I'm going to talk about salvation, specifically the story of the prodigal son. It's a very common story. I'm actually not going to put it up here. I'm just going to summarize it for you. I'm going to kind of open it up and talk about it. But Luke 15, okay, one through two is how it sets up. And then 11 through 32, I think this is the best place to go if you want to know what Christian salvation is really about, because you're going to see that in the end, Jesus pictures salvation as a feast. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm just going to summarize it real quickly. Going to look at a few verses, and then I'm going to go through these three things, forgiveness, fellowship, and fullness, and then we're going to be done. But we've got to set up the story first. So this is what it says, verse 1 and 2. It says, tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to hear Jesus, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So who is Jesus telling this story to? Two types of people. The tax collectors, the sinners, the prostitutes, the people that if they walked in the doors of the church, they would make everybody uncomfortable. Okay, that's who we're talking about. That's one audience. And they, by the way, were flocking to Jesus. Okay, so side note, if we are not attracting the same people that Jesus attracted, we're probably not preaching the same message that he preached. It's just one thing to think about, okay? Now, the second group are the Pharisees, these religious guys, these people that on the outside behaved really well. And so he is telling three parables to them. Now, the first parable is the parable of the lost sheep. Dude loses a sheep, loses a sheep, okay, leaves the 99, goes to find it. Remember that? And then they, he celebrates when he finds it. 
Okay, the second one, parable of the lost coin. Woman loses a coin. She searches all over the place. She gets it. And then what follows? Rejoicing, celebration. Okay. And then there's the parable of the prodigal son. It's verses 11 through 32. Okay. And what happens is, if you remember this, the younger son goes to his father and he says, I want you to give me my share of the inheritance, which in that time period is really as good as saying, I wish you were dead. Okay. So that's not a healthy relationship, right? And so that's what we're dealing with. So he leaves, he takes his inheritance, the father gives it to him. And it says in verse 13, he took a journey and he squandered his property in reckless living. Okay, so you can use your imagination what that looks like. But this dude is partying hard. He is finding life in the things that the world offers him. He's kind of like a poor man Solomon. Okay, if you want to think about Ecclesiastes. He is partying hard. He's just having a blast, living however he wants to, because he thinks that that's where joy is found. Okay, joy to the world. He thinks joy is found in breaking a relationship with his father. It's going to be found in the things of this world. Okay, and so he ends up coming to himself. He's like, what am I doing? And he says, says that when he does so, he's literally um, with pigs, It says he longs to be filled with the pods that the pigs are eating. So that's how desperate of a situation he is. That's a little worse than being lost in the woods in Austin. Like you are starving because you've spent everything. And you are hungry to the point where you would eat with pigs. Like that's pretty desperate. And so I don't know if you've ever done anything where like you, you know your parents caught you doing something. Okay. And you're preparing the speech. You're like, how am I going to get out of this one? And so you start thinking about it. You're like, okay, I'm going to say this. I'm going to blame her. Or like you start thinking about all that. And I've actually talked to you. I've like coached you up. I'm like, let me tell you how to do the speech. Okay. That's what the younger son starts doing is he starts thinking about it. Okay, that's what I'm going to say. I'm going to go back and say, look, I don't deserve to be your son. I deserve to be one of your slaves now. He has this whole speech. But before he can even deliver the speech, the father like drops everything. And he runs out to greet him. He doesn't even let the son say a word. And he is so excited that in verse 22, he says to his servants, he says, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, put shoes on his feet. So clothe him is what he's saying. Bring the fattened calf, like the best calf we have, kill it. We're going to celebrate. We're going to eat. We're going to have a feast for this son was dead again. He's alive. So does he sit there and go, man, you really messed up. Like we, we need to talk about that. Okay, let's learn some life lessons here. That's not what he does, right? That's not what he does. He rushes out in compassion and just celebrates the fact that this son is back. He doesn't even wait to hear what the guy says, and he celebrates him. Okay, but then at the end of the story, this is the one people leave out, is there's a second brother. It's the older son. And so he's in the field. He's working, and he hears the music. He hears the dancing. He hears this party. He's like, what's going on? And so he goes... And is what it says. It says he's so angry when he figures this out that the father's throwing this party for the younger son that squandered everything and came back. And it says he refused to go in. He would not go to the party. Then the father says to him in verse 29, he says, look, these, um, this is the son talking to the father. He says, look, these many years I have served you. I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But this son of yours who came and devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. So another dysfunctional relationship, like not very excited. The brother's back, does not want to celebrate with him. And this is what the father says. He says, son, you're always with me and all 
that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother was lost and now is found. So this is what I want to tell you about this parable before I go through the three points. There's actually two lost brothers in this story. We normally think the younger brother is the only lost one. Okay, there's actually two. The younger brother is lost in that he is seeking happiness through irreligion. Okay, the symbolism Jesus is using is that he is avoiding God as his Lord and Savior by ignoring him altogether. And so he thinks that if he rebels against the relationship with his father, with God, that's where life's going to be found. So some marks of this type of lostness are delighting in rebellion, like celebrating it, telling stories about it, laughing about it. It happens in high school all the time. It's kind of this you-do-you thing, like you do what feels right to you. That's where life is going to be found. Um, that Drake captures as well. I haven't quoted a Drake song in a while, so I'm going to do it again right now. Um, and is there more? One of the songs, this is what he says. This captures this concept. He says, my moral compass is janky. It breaks in the South. Is there more to life than digits in banking accounts? And so what he's saying is that my moral compass is messed up. And so I'm going to seek life. That's pretty good, wasn't it? I'm gonna, I want to seek life in other things, in rebellion. But it leads him to say, man, is there more? It's so Ecclesiastes-esque. It's exactly what happened to the younger brother. His moral compass was broken. He thought joy would be found outside of a relationship with the father. And he ends up saying, man, is there more? That's the first type. We see that a lot. The second type, though, is one that's not talked about a lot. The older brother is actually just as lost. He is seeking happiness through what we would call religion. He is avoiding God as his Lord and Savior by trying to earn God's love and acceptance by his good behavior. And so he doesn't have a good relationship with the father just like the younger son doesn't because he thinks that he's done something good enough to earn it. It's a transactional relationship. It's not relational. And so marks of this kind of lostness are people that are joyless. Like they might be really good people, but they don't have a lot of joy in their life. You know what I'm talking about? It might be you where you might be a really good Christian by the world standards, but you lack joy in your life. The second thing um, that it has is judgmental. And so these people are very judgmental. And so they might be really good people, but they're constantly looking down on people um, that are not as good on the outside. Okay, there's a, there's a movie about Mozart and this, this guy in it, his uh, name is Salieri. He's also a really good musician. And basically what he does, he's like, man, I, um, he makes a deal with God. He's like, I'm going to be a really good person. And then you owe me a successful music career. And then he looks and he sees Mozart, who's partying hard. He's like the younger brother, and he's the one that gets a successful music career. And this guy becomes angry at God because for him, he thought that because I'm a good person, God owes me a good life. That's religion, okay? That's, that's not Christianity. And so behind both of these versions of lostness are actually the exact same heart, pride and self-centeredness. And this is why lifelong older brothers a lot of times people that are really good on the outside but are judgmental and joyless on the inside can flip into younger brothers overnight and i've seen this happen like someone will go to a christian private school and they're kind of good on the outside but their heart is far from god you throw them like at highland park and they go off the rails you're like wait how did this happen it's because the heart never changed like the outside might have changed but the inside didn't change you see this happen all the time and so what that means is that sin is not just bad behavior. And this is the point. It's way more desperate than that. Sin is building your identity on something other than God. That's completely deeper than just, ah, be a good person on the outside. It's like, no, no, no. It's so much deeper than that. What is your heart trying to find your identity in? 
It's basically trying to be your own Lord and Savior. It's trying to fulfill and justify yourself. It can be through anything. Okay, it can be through anything at all. But here's the reality. Is it because of this, sin is a heart condition more than it's a behavior? Every single person in this room and in the world is looking for salvation, for a savior, for a solution, for a rescuer. The question is, what are you depending on to save you? What are you depending on to satisfy you? What are you depending on to give you security? What are you depending on to prove yourself in life? What are you doing and depending on to give yourself a sense of hope, meaning, and purpose, to feel like your life matters and you have worth? That is what you are depending on for your salvation. Okay, now I want to go back to this, and then we're going to talk about the three things. I'm sweating bad up here. I'm sorry. Just being real. Okay, what words describe the Father? If you look at the Father, what words describe him? Well, one word that describes him that Jesus uses is compassionate. And so his heart is filled with compassion for both of the sons. He's not angry at either of them. He is filled with compassion for both of them. The second thing that you see in the father is sacrificial love. So when he ran out there to greet the brother, we might hear that and go, that's sweet. That's a cool scene. That's actually, he's completely risking his reputation in the community. Because if a father did that, the whole community would potentially reject him. So he is giving up his reputation to go and welcome his son back. That's what he's doing. That's sacrificial love. It's actually cost him something. Um, the third thing you see, though, is joy. He's not reluctantly inviting both sons to the party. He is filled with joy, and he invites both sons, the lost younger brother and the lost older brother, to the feast. So here's our three points. Is, and I'm going to go very fast with these the feast, this idea, and we see this in Luke 15, it implies three things, forgiveness, fellowship, and fullness. I'm going to do this in about 10 minutes, and then SP is going to come up and, and ask, and we're going to sing one more. So forgiveness, let's blow through these. Um, have you ever been in a situation where you've had to forgive someone? Okay, that's really hard, isn't it? Like, I can think of a few in my life, and I'm like, I don't know that I actually did. Like, I can't say that, like, on paper, maybe I forgive them, but there's this thing in me where I, it's hard for me not to be bitter towards them. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like forgiving someone that's hurt you is actually really difficult. And so in our culture, though, and I really want you to hear this. This is so important. So if you tune out, try to tune in here. Is that our culture has lost the categories of sin, guilt, and forgiveness. So famous philosopher Nietzsche, have you heard of him? Not a good guy. But he argued that the feeling of guilt emerged in humans when you believed in God or God's. And so what his argument was is that if you decrease belief in God in a population, then what would also decrease? Feelings of guilt. And so if we take out God, people won't feel guilty. And, but there's a guy named William McClay, and he wrote this book, and he analyzed civilizations. And what he basically observed is that a sense of guilt exists in any civilization, whether you have God or not. Okay, Sigmund Freud, who's a psychologist, not a Christian, he explained that guilt is this strong sense of uneasiness about yourself or about life. And it leads to questions like this. Um, why isn't life better? Why don't I fit in? Why do I feel the need to work so hard to prove myself? Will anybody really love me? And so guilt is, it's not just I did something wrong, I feel bad. It's this deep feeling of an uneasiness in us. And so our culture, what we've tried to do in America today is we've tried to fix it by freeing people to express themselves however they want to, but that doesn't solve the problem of guilt. And you see that because of this thing called cancel culture, where if someone does or says something that's controversial, people try to cancel them. You know what I'm talking about? 
And so that's this expression of that's wrong and I want to cancel it. So in a culture where we've tried to eliminate feelings of guilt, we actually have signs that we might even believe it more than ever. So what the truth is this, is that humans try to abandon belief in God. We try to not talk about categories like sin, guilt, and forgiveness because we're like, that's outdated. 2022 is 2023. But we cannot abandon our moral beliefs as humans. We cannot abandon the sense of guilt that comes from that. And the truth is that a lot of you might be in this room today feeling guilty. And you might not even know that that's what it is. But here's what's cool is that this is where Christianity offers astonishingly good news for us when we are flattened by the bad news that we are guilty, that we are sinners before a holy God. That's where your feelings of guilt really come from, even if you try to suppress it. And so this is what we see in the parable of the lost son, is that the father offers full forgiveness, but forgiveness is costly. Forgiveness is free for you and me because it costs Jesus everything. So that's the reality. John Stott says it like this. He says, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. And that's what we see, is that Jesus lived a perfect life, and that is credited to your account. He died the death you deserve to die, and that is credited to your account. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it like this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that's Jesus, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the great exchange. You give him your sin, your feelings of guilt, your real guilt, and he gives you his own righteousness. That's a trade. Okay? It cost him everything, and it cost you nothing. That's what it means. It's a great transfer. Forgiveness is part of the feast. You're welcomed in as you are. Romans 8.1 puts it like this. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you're covered in Christ, there's no condemnation. God does not condemn you anymore. Your guilt has been fully removed. This is the only thing that can deal with the sense of guilt that so many of us walk around with. Jesus fully takes away your guilt. Yeah, the second thing that it means is fellowship. So this is what's so cool. This is what so many people miss about Christianity is that God not only forgives people who have sinned, he welcomes them into life in his presence and fellowship. So it's not just forgiveness. It's forgiveness and fellowship. In fact, you could say that forgiveness is granted for the purpose of fellowship. Okay, I don't even know, I don't know if you've been somewhere where you've gotten kicked out because you don't belong. Have you ever had this happen? Maybe y'all don't sneak into places like I have a history of doing, but I have been kicked out of places that I'm not technically supposed to be. But the best thing ever is when I was working the broadcast and I would be at Cowboys Stadium and they would give me a VIP pass. And so because I had that pass, I could go anywhere. And they'd be like, are you supposed to be here? And I'd be like, no, but I've got a VIP pass, so you can't kick me out, okay? And that's how this is, is that you're welcomed into fellowship with the creator of everything. You've been given a VIP pass, and so many of us don't use it because we think it's just about forgiveness. But it's like, no, 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 you're welcomed into fellowship. This is how 1 Peter 3.18 puts it. This is the first part, and I underlined the part that I want to emphasize. This is one of my favorite verses. This changed how I see the gospel is Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Meaning that because Jesus died on a cross, he brings you back to God. And so the way that I would put this, and I'm paraphrasing someone else, is that if you were to summarize the entire New Testament message in three words, one option would be this. Okay, I think I have this up here. Forgiveness through, or fellowship through forgiveness. That because God forgives you in Jesus, 
He welcomes you into fellowship with him. This summarizes Christianity. Fellowship through forgiveness. This is how J.I. Packer puts it. He says adoption, the fact that you are brought into God's family, is the highest privilege of the gospel. Like of everything Jesus won for you, the fact that you get brought into God's family, that's the highest privilege you have. How many of you are enjoying that privilege? Okay, the traitor is forgiven. There's forgiveness, but that doesn't end there. He's brought in for dinner and he's given the family name. So what that means is that God doesn't just say, now I'll see you in heaven. I'm glad you trusted in me. Okay, no, it means he is intimately involved in writing your story right now. He wants a close relationship with you right now. He's not after your behavior. He wants you to be with him. And so the gospel means that because of what Jesus did, you get a relationship with God entirely by grace. You receive it. You don't achieve it. Now, there's two enemies to this, to our fellowship with God in the gospel. The first one is this. The, the theology word is legalism. And basically what it means is that you think that grace got you in, but your goodness is what keeps you in. AKA, like God's feelings about you go up and down depending on how good you're doing. Okay, now this is, this is going to be common if you go to like a private school. It's very common inside the church is this mentality of like God's feelings about you rise and fall with your good behavior or your bad behavior. And the gospel crushes that. It says, no, no, no. The moment that you are forgiven, you cannot get any more forgiven and accepted that you already are. That God sees you as a loving Father. So you get to come to the table with no qualifications at all. So if you struggle with that like I do, you need to hear the gospel. The other thing, the theology word is what you call big words called antinomianism. You're going to see this more at like Highland Park in these kind of settings. So I see this all the time. Um, when you preach grace alone, grace alone, the natural question that you get, you get this all the time, is then can I live however I want? Like if God forgives me, can I just live however I want? If you're preaching the gospel, you should get that question. That means you're preaching it. Like if people ask that question, that means you are preaching the gospel. Now in Romans 6, Paul gets that question. People, or he says, hey, you're probably going to ask me, hey, if God forgives everything, can I just go live everyone? This is one of those common questions I get, by the way, from high schoolers. And what Paul does is you would think he'd be like, no, 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 slow down. Let's, let's like slow down on this grace stuff. That's a little dangerous. That's actually not what he does. In Romans 6, he actually gives more grace. And so what he's saying is that the issue with that, this mentality that's so prevalent in Dallas of like, well, God forgives me, I can do whatever I want. The issue that, with that is not that you understand grace too much. It's actually that you don't understand it enough. Okay, this is how R.C. Sproul puts it, is that a true understanding of grace always provokes a life of gratitude and obedience. There's a hymn, it's Thy Mercy, My God, and the line, and it's, it's Thy Mercy, My God, is the theme of my heart. I can't remember the lines, but it basically says, Thy free grace alone from the first to the last has won my affections and bow my soul fast. What he's saying is when you see that God's grace costs you nothing, but it costs Jesus everything, that will win your affections. And so the right response will not be, oh, good, I can do whatever I want. No, the, the only response, if you really get grace, is what would I rather do than follow God in a life of gratitude and obedience? Okay, and the last thing is this, and I'll end with this, then we'll get SP and Aspen back up here, is fullness. So it means forgiveness, means fellowship. It also means fullness. So when you think about a feast, is that a feast is a very physical experience. You just had Thanksgiving. Um, when, I, when I've been talking to people, like, hey, what'd you eat? People's faces change. Like, oh my gosh, 
Like I pounded my plate. I had turkey. I had this. I had this. We had this pie. And it's like they're reliving it because it's this sensory experience, right? That's what a feast is. And so what you see is a very physical experience. And so one of the things you see all over the, the Gospels is that Jesus is not just about individual salvation and forgiveness. He's about renewing the whole world. And what that means is it's going to be the end of disease, the end of poverty, the end of injustice, the end of violence, the end of suffering, and the end of death. So he not only preached the word so people could be saved and forgiven of their sins and have a relationship with God, he also healed the sick, he fed the hungry, he cared for the poor, because those are glimpses of him restoring all things. And that's what I mean when I say fullness. Salvation is not just about forgiveness. It's more than that. Jesus is going to restore and redeem the whole world. On Thanksgiving Day, my, my parents serve a lot in South Dallas, a very impoverished area. And so they dragged me down there. I wasn't really excited about it with my whole family. My sister and her husband were there. And one of the things they had me do is they had me go deliver meals in the rain to apartments in South Dallas. I'm like, it's great. Like it's, it's kind of a scary area and it's pouring down rain. And that's what I'm doing on Thanksgiving morning. And it ended up being one of the, my favorite things I've done this semester. I just got to knock on these apartment doors and give meals to people that didn't have food and say, Hey, Jesus loves you, but he not only cares about your physical well-being, he cares about your spiritual well-being. That's the gospel is that Jesus restores you to God, but he cares about the whole world. Jesus's kingdom is one of peace, justice, in love. And so when we are affected by that, that's going to flow out to other people. How we treat people will flow from the things that we believe. So I want to end with this question for you. If, if salvation, if what Jesus came to do in the gospel is a feast, that means that the gospel, it's, it's not stuff you have to do. It's something that Jesus has done. It is an invitation to a feast. This is the one question I just want to leave you with, and I want you to think about it this week. What is causing you to not enjoy the feast? What's keeping you from enjoying the feast? I don't know if it's the distractions of sin. I don't know if it's your own guilt about things that you've done. I don't know what it is, but I just want you to think about that. What's keeping you from enjoying the feast? Okay, pray with me, and then SP and Aspen, you guys can come back up here. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the reminder that we're being saved from something so much more desperate than we even think that it is. But we, we thank you that it's a complete salvation in Jesus, that you offer forgiveness, that you offer fellowship, that you offer fullness. And so, Lord, I just pray that today we'd be really honest about the things that are keeping us from the feast. As we sing this last song, Lord, I just pray we'd be reminded that we can be people who live with joy to the world. We can be people that live with hope because of what you have done for us in Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.